atau te mauri ki raro. E te iwi nau mai hoki mai anō ki te ahikā, ko maraia rakuraku ahau. Welcome back to Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand's weekly Māori Features program. E haere ake nei. In today's show, we had him on the program a few months ago. This time, last year's Lexus SongQuest winner, Philip Rhodes, talks about his childhood and keeping it real. I'm not the opera singer when I go home, I'm just the little Mary boy. <laughs> The Wairoa Film Festival returns this Queen's birthday weekend to Wairoa after a two-year hiatus, which means organiser Leo Koziel and his aunties are back. That's coming up later in the programme. Also, should Pākehā fear the return of illegally confiscated whenua to Māori? And what's a Clayton's deal? This and more came into debate for Te Runanga Nui o Tauranga Moana, the rōpū facilitating the return of Moao from Crown ownership back to its people. The deal was signed off last week in Parliament with the Moao Historic Reserve Vesting Bill. Colin Bidwa talks to that kaupapa. A two-hour production, a cast of 18, the impact of the Vietnam War upon its returned soldiers and their whanau as the subject, starring Rangatahi at odds with the system. I made some wrong choices. Um, that got me involved the, with the court system. Fellow called um, Mihari Kirby, interviewed me, came, went back to gym, said that I was a pretty good culprit for the operation. That's coming up in a moment. Today marks the 30th anniversary since police and army troops marched onto Takaparafo, Bastion Point, and physically removed the Ngāti Whātua Papakainga to make way for a housing project. We'll have a special on that in two weeks. Since 1989, Te Rākau Hua o Te Waotapu, the trust John Moriarty runs with his wife Helen Pierce Ōtene, have had over a thousand troubled youth through their programme. They use theatre as a tool to facilitate choices and ultimately change for these rangatahi. I caught up with Moriarty and two cast members earlier this week. Kamate Ka Ora, this is a piece that was commissioned specifically for the Tribute 08 commemoration and reunion for the Vietnam veterans? Aye, that's right. It was um, by, by Tribute 08, by the organisation um, that, you know, is creating the initiative with the government to basically provide a, a, a decent fucking law for the Vietnam vets and their families. And um, Helen, who wrote the play, Helen Pierce Altenny, she is herself the daughter of a Vietnam vet. And so you know, what she's attempted to do is tell a story from the inside, but also because we're uh, our, our company, our trust that has put this play together, we're a national bed night provider to SIF, to children and young persons, and so we also wanted to tell the story of not only the Vietnam generation, but also of their children and of their mokopuna. So we're trying to jump three generations here, and... Um, in the end, you know, whether you're pro or anti-war, it's a phenomenon that's been with us from time immemorial. They talk about us being a, a warrior nation. Um, you know, you have to live with that and you have to um, turn it into something good and positive. And a lot of our people end up, you know, inside Tumatoinga, inside um, the army. And that's the choice they make. I know why they go there, because there's brotherhood, there's unity, there's whanaungatanga. Um, it's not for me to, to ask whether it's right to invade other people's countries or, you know, to, to kill or not to kill. 
Um, I know if someone knocked on my door or smashed through my house and maybe wanted to uh, do something mean to my family, I would take whatever measures I, I uh, would deem appropriate at the time to try and defend my family. No question about that. So I think that that desire to protect is in all of us. Um, anyway, I remember the, the Vietnam generation. I was a, a, a child, uh, well, a young fella. I did cadets at school in the 60s and um, I enjoyed that. Uh, I also, um, you know, was part of some protest movements against the Vietnam War, but not against the soldiers. I mean, the soldiers were, were commissioned soldiers who, when they join up in the army, they sign a contract that says you go where you're told to go. They were told to go there because of the prevailing attitudes at the time. They were given a hard time on their return. I think this is part of an initiative to try and straighten that up to balance and, 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 and redress uh, the, uh, the response they got at the time. And for some of them, and the play reflects it, they've been carrying resentments and anger for a long time, some of them. Some of them have managed to push it down and, and move on. Others, you know, I work in mental health as well, and, and, and I have encountered many, many Vietnam vets who are still trapped inside that whole phenomena. Um, the Agent Orange thing is real, it's alive and well. There's a lot of uh, fauna who are ill from it. There's more vets tied off the battlefield from the residual impact of Agent Orange than actually on it. So um, this play tries to reflect um, some of the, the, the real things that have happened to the vets since the war and to their family members. And uh, I, uh, I, I hope it, it serves and honours uh, them in the best way possible. Um, that was Helen's... Uh, uh, that was what she wanted to do. And, you know, I think she thinks about her dad and, and her army uncles when she put this piece together. And um, also about, you know, the generation of rangatahi now who, who themselves are fighting a, a war, you know, the war of poverty, disenfranchisement, dysfunction to some extent. Um, and so... You know, theatre is a great way to um, to try and just, um, I guess, get an array of attitudes and opinions that that never let us forget that, rightly or wrongly, at the time people were doing what they believed to be right at the time. I mean, Kamateka Ora is quite epic, you know, in terms of the subject matter and the different stories that, yeah. and the introduction of characters towards, you know, all yeah. the way through it. Oh, Kilda, there's, I mean, there's uh, 18 characters on stage, and including a dog, whiskey number nine, <laughs> number 10, and on he goes. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, again, we wanted to tell, you know, as many good stories as possible. Um, and, and certainly in this particular uh, play, some of the, um, the characters are related to Te Rauparahai, are descendants of, of that illustrious ancestor, and therefore Angati Tor. So there's that element weaving through there, sure. Oh, oh, you know, I'm, I'm Ngati Tor, descendant myself. I'm a direct um, uh, descendant of Te Rauparaha. Um I guess it could have been equally told through uh, Angapuhi, uh, Kahungunu, uh, Rangitane, ancestor as well. We've chosen Te Rauparaha and we've chosen his journey, you know, from darkness to light, Kamate Kaora, and some of the dynamics that happened to him in his um, illustrious journey to survive. And, you know, it's that whole thing amongst Māori, you know, Te Oa, it's ongoing. Is the, the past, the present and the future are always interconnected yeah. and that's what we're trying to demonstrate here um, 
you know, that, that and it our, can often be occurring in the same time as well. Eh? Absolutely. I mean, as I said with you, I know my tūpuna around me. I know the future's with me too. And, and you know, we, we're trying to make a statement here that can serve the past, present, and hopefully the future as well. Now, the play's a very physical one, and you use the whole theatre. Yeah, well... Um, we were, um, you know, contracted to, to create this work and we were looking at a number of venues in the first instance and there was going to be any number one of maybe a half a dozen different venues. This is the venue we, we ended up with and it's ironic, you know, it's Capital E, it's the New Zealand Children's Theatre and it's the McKenzie Theatre, which is a little theatre inside New Zealand Children's Theatre. Well, you know, so this generation understands and what do they say, least we forget. Um, I think it's a really appropriate place for this play to be presented um, because this theatre has a co-papa to children and let's face it if our children don't understand the past you know how do we expect them to be able to live satisfactorily in today and also you know prepare the future for themselves and for their children. And you're doing much more here than just presenting a play the tamariki that you look after through SIFs yeah I mean you're going through a process of educating them as well Nira not only in the art Yeah. of acting but also in the subject of the of the play yeah well you know um funnily enough you know and i think it's entirely appropriate this has been a, a bit of a journey for us even to get here amongst the rangatahi you know some of our staff some of our actors have left along the way um some of our rangatahi have run away and not come back some have run away and come back and so we've we've had our own little if you like mini war absolutely to get here <laughs> But that's life, you know. You've got to deal with what comes up. Even tonight, uh, as you watch this uh, dress rehearsal, um, it wasn't perfect. And I d- don't think it will ever be perfect because in its organic thing, that involves a lot of people. Yeah, some of our rangatai never acted in this way before in their lives, but they certainly understand wairua Māori. They certainly understand all those dynamics of, of um, you know, struggle and war and and. and and the need to survive. I mean, why are we working with our rangatahi who are from SIFS in this way? We're doing it because, if you like, the word theatre to me is synonymous with whakawhanaungatanga. It's about creating family. And why do we use the theatre? Because this is about our rangatahi using some of the tools and methodologies that support theatre, both Pākehā Māori, um, to, to refine their voice. To, to find that magical thing that's inside them, that put or two that they were born with, they've always had, and we're just trying to, um, you know, nurture it up and out. So rather than all that energy they got going to not such good outcomes that, that end them up in, you know, uh, prisons and places like that, um, we're trying to nurture that uh, that energy up so that it um, it can end up, uh, you know, in a positive, constructive way. And I mean. For young fellows who have never done this before, some of them, there's some awesome, awesome outcomes. And just finally, how much fun was it to select the music? Was that a bit of Little Wing by Jimi Hendrix yeah, I was hearing there? Yeah, it was. There was a bit of Little Wing, Purple Haze, and also a bit of Steppenwolf. I mean, you know, I was around in those days. I, I, I love that music. In fact, the songs we've chosen... Um, as a result of a survey that had been conducted worldwide amongst Vietnam vets, these were some of the most listened to songs by the, the vets themselves. And so, you know, we're trying to honour them, so we've put those dynamics into the, into the play. I love that music from that era. Hang on, I'm old enough to have been a Vietnam vet myself, but we've chosen those songs because those are the ones that the vets have most listened to themselves. 
um, all the other elements, you know, we've created along the way. That's the joy of creating new theatre. So here's a, you know, tomorrow night or when we open is the premier world uh, opening of a new New Zealand play. Kia ora. Kia ora. So if you could just introduce yourself. Kia ora. Uh, kia ora. Uh, my name's Chris Fairclough. I'm 17 years old. I'm from Taranaki. Kia ora. Uh, kura pui te maunga, ko wanganui te awa. Uh, my name's Jimmy Maraikura. I'm from um, uh, Wanganui and Oahakuni. I'm a dad side from Oahakuni. I'm from my mum's side. I'm from down the river. Uh, yeah, big place in Oahakuni. Population about as many as sitting in the theatre. <laughs> There's only five people in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Cooney. That's Cooney. Now, you're both involved in the production of Kamate Ka Ora. How did you get involved in that? I made some wrong choices uh, in my stay in New Plymouth. Um, that got me involved the, with the court system. Um, my auntie then referred me to uh, Tirake. Uh, yeah, I um, got involved with Tirako. Um, fa fellow called um, Mihari Kirby interviewed me. Came, went back to gym. Um, said that I was a pretty good culprit for the operation. So and you know, I said, oh yeah, no, I'm keen to come down. They rang me up. You can come down, pick your bags. We'll be there tomorrow. So this play deals with the Vietnam War. Now you two, you fellas are teenagers. What was your knowledge of the Vietnam War before you started working on this project? Um, well, I had a brief knowledge of the uh, Vietnam War because my grandfather was served in it. But, um, yeah, after getting involved with uh, this show, I've got a more detailed understanding of, uh, you know, the war, the reasons why it was, you know, started. And, yeah... And what about you, Jimmy? Were you aware of some of the things that went down during uh, Vietnam? Just the ancient orange and um, just some of the, the, the hell things that the soldiers went through. And, um, yeah, yeah, what the things that I heard from it was, um, it was hell. And it was somewhere where you didn't want to be. And, yeah. Now, that was a bit of a, that was a mean-ass haka that you fellas were doing when we walked in. What's the haka all about? The haka originally comes from a group Ngarapa Tonga. Uh, they're based in Hastings. Uh, the haka represents uh, pakanga, uh, pakake and uh, huminga wakato. I forgot the other one's name when they all came together and they had a big walk, they had this big fight. In the beginning of it, when the, when the lady does, does the tangi, it's um, prepping all the men for, for war. And that's why you see when you come in, the women are doing their tangi and the, the men are just moving with, in silence and just revving themselves up. And then you come in, first words were tenei whiraia, tenei huakina, hekai mahu, meaning the breakthrough, rip open, and your head's going to be my breakfast. was all written by a great man called Ropatahipi from um, Heritanga. Uh, kia ora, my name's Chris. Uh, come check out our show. Te Rakehu o Te Wautapu. Um, opens on the 21st of May, finishes the 1st of June. 
and to the uh, Radio New Zealand crew for coming for coming in tonight and uh, supporting our co-pop. All right, uh, our theatre production, Kamati Kaura. Come down and see us, support our whanau, Kamati Kaura, that's our name. Te te wautapu, represent. Ai. Next week, Tribute 08, a Vietnam reunion, is on in Wellington. On our webpage, there are details around that and we'll also hear from a Vietnam vet affected by Agent Orange. As we lead up to Matariki, here's a love story for you. Two guys, one girl, two's company, three's a crowd. Usually ends in tears, right? Well, in the case of the mountain, Mauau, ends up in a lagoon in the setting known today as Maunganui. Colin Maunapohatu Bidwa explains the history of Mauau and the implications the shift from crown ownership back to Naitirangi Iwi holds for his people. Well, Mauau has, it really has a life of its own. And um, our legends take it back to eons before human race was even on Earth. Right, once Moa stood way back in the hills, and it stood among three mountains there. <clears throat> One we know today as uh, Pufenua, um, and there were the other two mountains. Pufenua was female, and she was the most beautiful a female mountain in the total vista of that area. The two male mountains vied for her favours. But Moa, as we know it today, we don't know what the name was then, was a slave mountain. It was looked upon as a slave mountain, so it could not compete with the other mountain there. Eventually, uh, Pufenua declared her love for the other mountain, on the horizon. Well, um, Moa stood there in silence and suffering for uh, for eons and finally could not um, stand that any any longer. So he called on the Potupaida here, the, the fairy people whom he had sheltered and fed for eons, and um, put it to them that, you know, my life, I cannot stand this any longer, losing the love of Pufenua, and I want you to plait a big, strong black rope and drag me down to the sea because I intend to drown myself. They protested and said they did not have the strength to do that. But, um, and the response was, well, go and bring in your, your relations from all around, from Putawaki, from Maungapuatu, from Nongataha, mm. and all around, and do this. Which they did do eventually on the night of Motariki, a nice long night and cold night. They worked hard, they plaited the ropes. And they hauled Moa down, right down through the valleys and the gullies and um, to the edge of the water. But when they got there, the um, first rays of the sun were breaking over the horizon. And of course, the Patupairahep were people who could not stand the sunlight. It would destroy them. And because they saw the rays of sun coming up over the, over the horizon, they were very sorry, apologised, and um, um, told Mawa that they could not take him any further, otherwise they would all die. And so they rushed back to the shelter of the bush. And so Mawa was caught there. That Ma 
daylight in, um, we interpreted as caught by the daylight. So Mawao became its name, and it's anchored there for life now. And that's in reference to where it's placed, where it sits now, it's isn't it? It sits now right on the edge of the channel, the harbour, yes. Which for today's people is the settlement of uh, Maunganui there? The, the, the Maunganui settlement, that spit that runs out there to Maunganui, yes. Well, Mount Maunganui came about during the colonisation period, um, and um, we don't know exactly who initiated Mount Maunganui, but um, uh, so that is sort of lost. It's uh, as to how it became that name it was changed from Mawo to Mount Maunganui. I think it was a convenience thing for the colonist area. Era. Because I guess it's it's nonsensical anyway, isn't it? Mount Maunganui, it's yes. like saying mountain, mountain. Yes, it's mountain, big mountain. <laughs> yes. So how did Moao end up in Crown Hands? Well, it was through, um, well, the usual uh, colonial um, manipulation, manipulation, of the breaches of the Treaty of Waitangi, um, manipulation of laws which were aimed at dismantling the social and political infrastructure of Maoridom, laws such as the New Zealand Settlement Act of 63, Native Land Act of 73, the Wastelands Act of 76, the Public Works Act of 1884, and the Harbour Act of 1878, and other statutes. Um, were aimed at, let's say, dismantling the normal infrastructure of Maoridom, including divesting Maoridom of, of land. And it was through <coughs> these, these acts and the manipulation of that, and also um, skullduggery by some of the, the land agents um, here in Tauranga. See, there were three islands that were not mentioned in the original, um, under the 63 um, Settlement Act, but the Crown took them over regardless. And when um, the local chiefs um, reacted to this, they were threatened with, um, with violence, so they realised their own impotence in trying to stop all this. Now, what year was this? This was uh, really subsequent to the confiscation of land, around about the 1860s, 1870s, and, and carrying on through to, to the 1900s. Because I guess what's important to signal here is that regardless of whether it was a, um, a wahi tapu, um, whether it was your awa or your maunga, confiscation was... Um, confiscation just happened. Well, un under the <clears throat> 1863 Settlement Act, um, Tauranga was considered in rebellion, and so therefore the whole of Tauranga, Wana, the whole of our lands were confiscated. Subsequently, um, most of the land was given back because Gray had said that he would keep a quarter. But following that, there were two things that happened. 
there was the um, purchase, so-called purchase, what we call it, to put a Katikati block, which is around 92,000 acres of of, um, of land. But even Fox himself has said it was confiscation under another guise. And then there was there were all these other acts which were brought into play to acquire more land. And because of the <clears throat> um, the nature of of our, the knowledge of our people here, the resources that they had, they didn't have the resources, the knowledge uh, and the ability to fight these, and particularly when it came to um, the overwhelming power that the government had with the forces they had here in Totem. So since 1863, the Crown has had ownership of Moal. No, 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 no. It, it, it acquired um, Moal uh, in, in, in pieces over... Over, over uh, a period of time. Over, over a period of time, yes. So how significant is it for your iwi to be going through a process at the moment of Moal being returned to your iwi? Oh, look, it is extremely significant just as Taranaki and Mount Cook or Auraki and um, Ahikurangi over in the east coast, these were icons which anchor all the iwi of Tauranga. And Tauranga, we, we, um, there's the three iwi in Tauranga plus Waitaha. We have all significant attachment. Each of those iwi have had people um, live on them. Our tūpuna lived on them. Our tūpuna fought on it. Our tupuna died on it, our tupuna socialised on it, and it was it, it is the spiritual anchor here in in in, um, in Tauranga for, for those four iwi, but it's come back to the three iwi of, of Tauranga Moana itself. So, if you could explain the process that occurred where uh, your people came down from Tauranga Moana to Parliament last week. Right, well, really, it started um, seven years ago. It's been a long, slow process, but that is to be expected. Where you've got four iwi, you've got a local authority, you've got three or four government departments, you've got the bureaucrats in Wellington. Um, it was never going to be a short journey. But patiently, we've worked through all the issues, whether they have been local or whether they have been with the bureaucrats in Wellington or with the ministers and that, we've slowly worked through all the issues and it finally uh, came together uh, a, um, oh, about four months ago when um, the, gov uh, the government was able to write up the proposed uh, legislation. We discussed it and uh, um, criticised it. They took it back and went through the bill process but um, then we were we were advised that the uh, well we were pleased with the first reading because there was opposition not to it coming back but some of the processes and the second reading going through fairly unanimously and we knew that um, uh, in Wellington they were dealing with the objections that had been laid forth here in Tauranga and they're trying to meet the local iwi's wishes. And when the legislation itself came came out, or the, the draft legislation for the third reading, 
we were all quite relieved because we thought it was very reasonable in the circumstances. There's still one or two things that people want to address. And um, naturally, we had to go down to one because it was such a significant occasion, an important occasion of Tangata Whenua of Tauranga Moana, that we had to go down there to listen and to greet the new new legislation. And so and they were, oh, they, they ended up, um, I think, about 46 people from Tauranga were actually in Parliament at the time of the debate. And to see four people from the National Party, four people from the Labour Party, and spokespersons from the Progressive, from um, Winston's party, from the Maori Party, all get up and address it in a positive manner. And then for it to be voted on and not one dissension. That was a very emotional moment. And particularly for our Koma Tuakuya. Since this journey has begun, there have been several of our Koma Tua and Kuya um, passed on. And we are sorry that they were unable to see the results of the efforts that they had put in. But those of us who were there, it was certainly a very significant and a very emotional moment. Kia ora. Now, um, what, have, what were some of the objections? Some of the objections? Mm. Well, in the initial, legis- in the initial proposal, the, the um, bill, the first draft of it, um, it appeared to us to be a bit of a Clayton's deal in that we were being given the, the Maunga back, but um, um, within some of the clauses, the initial clauses, it, um, the, the, the Crown was still clinging on to overall responsibility and, um, yes, to, to overall responsibility and able eventually to, to do what, what they wanted to do with it. Um, it, it did have those, a couple of clauses there which we could not accept as truly handing Moal back. So we made objections to that. All the submitters made objections to those clauses. And I must say that the Select Committee obviously did listen to that because they went back and considered and readjusted those clauses so that they didn't have that sort of um, tokenism about it. And what about the response from the community? What's that been like? All right. Well, this response from the, from the community, as you can, as you, as you could expect, it, it, right across the, the the spectrum of those who violently object to it, to those who are, and I'm talking about um, the the rest of the community, not the Maori community, and right across the spectrum to those who who totally went along with it, and um, I must say that there's a, a couple of um, letters that we received and remarks that we received which. You know, we're, we're just totally ignorant, and um, it shows that the old bigotry is still around, even though it is in small. Um, it isn't very uh, great, but yes, it is still there. Okay, we just ride right past that. But but um, certainly the the community did have apprehensions, and rightly so. And things we had to assure them about 
And the principles we had to assure them about was that the inalienability of Moa. No part of Moa will ever be sold. Non-commercialization. We don't want to see gondolas running up there. We don't want to see restaurants poked all over the place. Non-commercialization of Moa. Um, it must be open to all, free of charge at all times. Uh, passive type recreation, enjoyment only. Um, and also we, the, the handing back of Moa was to be outside the Oropatu um, process. And um, also the general public can be reassured because the administration, the day-to-day -day administration of Moa will be done by a joint committee of Tangata Whenua and councillors of Tauranga City Council. Colin Maunapohatsu Budwa no Naitirangi Iwi, Chairperson of Te Runanga Nui o Tauranga Moana. Could it get any more rock and roll than this? Māori boy discovered in a karaoke bar in Hastings, now studying opera in Wales. So tell me about yourself, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, a place called Havelock North uh, uh, in Hawke's Bay. I grew up in a little street called Lipscomb Crescent, which is uh, uh, you know, a wonderful place to grow up, colourful area to grow up. Um, when I say I've never seen myself as Māori, I, I guess... Um, what I mean to say is that when I'm performing, you know, I don't, I don't think anything, any one part of me is more, more Māori than the other. And now I'm being Māori, and now I'm not. Um, uh, I definitely grew up seeing myself as a Māori, and, and often embarrassed about it. Where I grew up in Lipscomb Crescent, um, it wasn't a pretty street. I can tell you that. Um, there were a lot of Māori families, a lot of poor Māori families, um, and a lot of my friends, I, I, I think, have done extremely well to get out of there. Because it is a it is a void in Havelock that's often not talked about. You know, uh, we hear about all the rich folk in Havelock Woodford and House. money, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah, Woodford, Iona, and, mm. and you know, um, all the all the kids from Havelock go to Linda's Farm. Or where I grew up, that wasn't the case. You know, we had a little primary school in our block on our street called Anderson Park Primary, which um, you know had sixty children and and not many. You know, not many of them had money, and there were only a couple of white children there. But it was still embarrassing to be, ma well, to be poor Māori um, and to know that and to be reminded of that, you know. I guess uh, in a way that's contributed to the performer I am today, you know, all the pretending that I'm, you know, I'm not that poor Māori kid and, and being embarrassed about it. Now, older, I realise it, you know, it wasn't silly because you can't avoid what you feel as a child, but it's, um, you know, it's something I'm proud of now and... Um, you know, have embraced and 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 that's thanks to the help of my foster parents. You know, they they took us in and and they showed that there's there is pride in poverty. Just because you don't have money doesn't mean you're untidy. Mm. It doesn't mean that you're paru. You know, um, you, dumb. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you're dumb. You know, um, and and we found that pride and we found that that love for for life as well. You know, it became a very empowering thing to feel pride in yourself and oh you know yeah, hey I am Māori too you know that's you know to realise that, that that's something to be more proud of I guess you know What made a Māori boy go into opera? Uh, oh, I guess it was Because um, I guess the only uh, other Māori well, person I know is Inya Tewiata Yeah yeah well there's there's a lot actually there's um, I mean another friend from from um, 
from Flaxmere, Robert Widemu, is a wonderful singer. You know, he was here in the festival just singing not, not so long ago in the Wellington Arts Festival, um, you know, singing some German repertoire. And, and I think to myself, how many Māoris, you know, know German? And I don't mean the German fella down at the pub, but, you know, speaking <laughs> German and singing German. I mean, I did a I did a, a show, concert with Robert in, in uh, Rotorua, and a bunch of tourists walked into the church we were singing in, rehearsing in, and Robert stood up and said, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? And a few put their hands up and he started speaking to them and he asked them, you know, parlo italiano? And he started speaking to them in Italian. I thought, jeez, I'm so dumb. Here's this Māori fella speaking to all these people in these different languages. Mm. Um, you know, and that's that's an awakening in itself that, that a boy from Flaxmere is off speaking all these languages and, and singing and, and magnificently too and, and and being humble enough to to you know, just get on with life and, and not, you know, not feel that he's the man or, you know, he gives a lot of time to other people and and uh, that's another thing that another sort of pride I feel about being Maori or even Polynesian, you know, pull in and help each other and, and uh you know all these things that that I didn't believe ex- existed when I was a child. You know, you didn't help one another. You, when someone was getting the bash down the road, you closed the door. You know, um, and and uh, getting older and accepting that, you know, I'm a Maori and I'm going to start behaving like we should. You know, not this abusive way and not this what what the the papers perceive us to be. You know, behaving with love and generosity and and. Uh, it opens a, it's opened a lot of doors, you know. My knowledge of opera and stuff is pretty limited, but I do know that for Kiri Te Kanoa, uh, she had teachers that were very influential towards yep. her. Was that has it been your case as Certainly well? Certainly the case. Um, I was I was singing of all places in a in a bar in Flaxmere. I was managing a bar, and I was uh, which bar? The Friends Bar. It was called. It was a karaoke bar. And uh, I was a singing barman, and uh, I had a flatmate who was studying at at, uh, at the uh, singing school in Hawke's Bay, EIT, and he brought the teacher in to, to hear me sing, and the teacher sort of insisted that I should go go to the school and, and get my diploma. And uh, I've How long ago was that, Philip? That was when I was 21, so what's that, seven years ago, seven, eight years ago? And, um, you know, he, I went back to the school full of, you know, the, one of the world's greatest tenors has asked me to, to come and, you know, come to the school. as Patrick Power is his name. And uh, I went there and I've been, you know, I've been a student of his from, well, since I've left, so seven years, wow. you know. And um, it's never been difficult to be a student. Uh, I've never thought to myself, oh, my voice isn't working, I've got to leave. Um, you know, he's such a humble man and and uh, an honest man, and and also the fact that he you know never really felt he had to charge me. All I all I had to do was a little bit of work on his farm, and and you know, um, which you know in a in a way is uh, is a big ask for for a man who makes his money teaching to to give you know free lessons, and uh, I'll never forget that, and I'll, I'll hold that dear in my heart, and and one day I'll return it to some other singer. I hope you know. Because by European standards, 21 would be quite old to start singing opera. Yeah. Uh, in the school I'm at in Cardiff, the, uh, there's not one singer that wasn't singing before they were, thir- you know, after they were, before they were 13. You know, they were all, they were all young singers. I hope I've put that right now. They were all very young when they started singing and uh, 
you know, the way their sort of eyes light up when I say I didn't start singing opera till I was 21. The, um, you know, it's almost as though the, there's a miracle in that for them. And and, uh, and I guess for a couple there's an air of, uh, it's, well, I guess it is jealousy, you know, that, that oh, you're 20, I'm 20, 28, 29 now, and, um, and in that space of sort of, seven years uh, I'm in the same school as they are and, and I haven't been to a university for five years you know and um, for, for a couple I think it's a bit hard to chew uh, but um, it, you know that that's human nature that's fine and, and they don't make a big thing of it it's not as though you know they sort of snob me or, or anything like that but it's intriguing to them and, and they can't understand it you know and they've they almost think they. One made a comment that they wish they had have grown up in New Zealand and could just come over here and you know, um, and that that's amusing in itself and it's a it's another thing just to put in the bank and and yeah. you know when when I start thinking oh I don't think I'll do this bit of homework to you know to realise that people talk like that and and you know it's a bit of fire to to get up and and work harder and and surpass the levels that everyone else is setting and I think that's. Unfortunately, that's the way we should all live. You know, we should look to surpass our predecessors, and we should look to to um, better ourselves. And and you know, we can't always set our own standards. We have to look to someone else and say, "Well, I want to be better than that." Um, and and uh, I, I'm I'm doing my best over there to do that. You know, every classmate that sings, I think, "Well, I want to sing that, and I'm going to sing it better than that." And uh, and uh, some people may feel that that's a wrong way of looking at life, but but for me it it works, and and I've got to keep setting big, I've got to keep setting challenges, and um, and feel that I'm bettering not only myself but the person next to me because it's a competitive world. Uh, when you were a young fella, did you did you see that this was going to be the life that you were going to be having as an opera singer? Certainly not. A know? career? Certainly not. Even when I was 23, 24, you know, I still didn't see it as a career. I sort of saw it as something something I can do after work down at the local amateur society. Uh, you know, that that's all the ambition was, to just keep my job and, and, uh, and do a bit of performance afterwards and, and feel the... The fun of that, but the more I got into it, the the more the harder it came to go to work every day, mm-hmm. and the more I thought, gee, I just want to be on stage. And and it took a long, long time from you know, twenty three. It felt like a long, long time just to get where I am now, and I'm still in a school and studying, and and um, and while I can feel the wheels are in motion over there, and people are talking, you know, well, and I'm being invited to sing here and sing there, um. It's still a feeling of, uh, geez, I, I'm really not, you know. And it comes down to the monetary value, I guess. I'm not making any money, you know. I, I could be working somewhere making money, but but I also know I, I now hate it. I hate the the nine to five job, and and I don't have the temperament for it anymore. Um, and it would take something drastic to get me back there, you know, really drastic. I guess probably chop my legs, arms, and and neck off or something to get me back there. Um, you know, I love theatre in all its aspects. Now, I've, I've I've tried my best to get around and appreciate every different job that happens in a theatre, from pulling the ropes to to trying to call in when a curtain should come in. You know, I've I've done all that and I've applied my hand to it, and I've enjoyed every aspect of it. And um, 
and so if I was to lose my voice, I don't think I'd remove myself from theatre. You know, I'd uh, I'd continue to work there and 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 you know know that I'd still have the joy for it. And uh, and I guess as a child, I'd never knew about that. You know, I, I knew about performing. Well, my foster father was a, a is a good speaker and a good performer. And I knew about performing, and I knew that's what I wanted to do somehow, some way. But I didn't know how I could tie my life into it. You know, um, I, I love playing rugby. I love playing sports. I love going to school to eat lunch. You know? um, I, um, I, I didn't have ambitions to be an opera singer at all. Um, but uh, the, I've re, I've come to realise through Patrick and and through even my grandparents, you know, that there is a gift there. And uh, and that uh, I dare not uh, abuse it or or ignore it, so so I've tried to follow that through, and, and things are going well so far. So, do they make a um, genealogical connection? Do they go, oh yeah, he's just like blah blah. Remember uh, Uncle Dada? He used to do yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, to be honest, no, no. Um, they uh, because I am fostered. You know, they they wonder where it comes from, but. Um, the performance factor, I think, exists in all my all my family. Because you've mean, got a big whanau here. Yeah, I have. I've got five. I've got five sisters and uh, one older half sister who I only met, you know, last year at the start of last year, and even she has the performance factor. You know, <laughs> whether it be on stage or not, you know, there's the performance factor that you can hold, a, you know, hold people for for a long period of time, and they just sit and listen and and are enthralled by it. Um, I mean, all of my sisters, we grew up in a social welfare family home and uh, you become a very good performer in a family home. You, you can you can, uh, you can can trade the word performer in for the word liar, but it's still the same <laughs> thing. <laughs> You're basically doing the same thing. And, and your survival aspects become heightened a wee bit, you know, not as though you feel that you're going to die or anything, but, you know, you might get a crack from that street kid that's just come in this tonight, you know, or he might steal some stuff. So you you live on, you feel like you live on the edge all the time and, and uh, performing's no different. And people ask, you know, there's this, there's this belief in theatre that, oh, you've got to be at least a little bit nervous. And I think, well, no, I'm not nervous at all. I'm not, I'm not scared if I stuff up a line. You know, I know I have the ability to, to carry on and do, you know, say something else that makes sense. And uh, and I'm I'm in the character enough to to carry on. And and that doesn't that doesn't scare me if I stop on stage anyway. You know, I, I sort of. Not that I look forward to it or I hope that it happens, it doesn't scare me at all, and mm. and um, that's I think that's the only thing people can possibly get nervous about, you know. But well, you know, I don't know what else there is, but people always suggest to me that I should be a little bit nervous, and I think no, I'm excited, but I'm not anything nervous, you know. Nervous implies a fear, and and I think if you've got that, you you may be in the wrong job. <laughs> if you have fear, you may be in the wrong job. Been like being a pilot. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, imagine sitting behind the blooming plane every day and and thinking, oh goodness, I'm I hope I can get the thing off the ground. <laughs> I know. You know? Yeah. So, how often and how hard does it make you when people get you confused with Teddy Rhodes? Ah, uh, oh, there's no no problems there. Oh, beautiful Teddy Rhodes. <laughs> there's no problems confusing the two of us. I think. Um, uh, there's always the question: Are we related? And and uh, well, I can't answer that. I don't know my my Rhodes Fano at all. But uh, 
um, I imagine somehow, some way we are, you know, way, way down the track, but uh, our, our pigmentation of skin would suggest that perhaps we're not. Um, but, uh, I mean, Teddy's a, a beautiful singer and, and a, a very fine-looking man, and, uh, and uh, uh, there's no trouble confusing us. <laughs> you ended up in Cardiff at the school because you won, you won a scholarship. Yeah. I, I won the uh, uh, Lexus... Um, Songquest, which used to be the mobile Songquest, uh, uh, with you know with prestigious winners such as Dame Kitty Takano and Malvina Major, and and recently Jonathan Lamalu, mm. um, and of course mm. Teddy Tahu Rhodes. Um, but uh, I got this into is the like school. The epitome of of operatic performance in New Zealand. In, yeah, in New Zealand, it definitely is. You know, this is the this is the ultimate sort of the coup, I guess. You know, mm. that this suggests to everyone that you've got the goods. Yeah. To, to go overseas and, and, you know, you better damn well make it, you know. Uh, um, and there is there is that pressure, and I enjoy that, you know, that um, I enjoy when someone says, you know, well, you better bloody do it, you know. There's no there's no ifs, buts, or maybes, you better do it. I enjoy that. I'd like to take that on. Um, and uh, I guess the Cardiff thing really came about because of Dame Kitty Takanua. I mean, uh, I know we hear these, you know, the bits and pieces we see of Kitty in the paper make her out to be this heartless diva. Heartless diva, but you know she's a really caring, caring woman, and she's got a lot of good intentions. And and thanks to her, I'm in Cardiff, uh, learning from the best in the world. And you know, uh, I think to myself, how ever would I have from New Zealand sung for the for the uh, coach of of the Metropolitan Opera Young Artist Group? And you know, I sang with him for two weeks. And um, hopefully impressed them, you know. I think so. He gave me his card. <laughs> I should ask ask my other students, the other <laughs> students, if they got a card from him. But, but you know, how how else would I have had that opportunity? And and there's more opportunities to come when I come back. You know, well, a lot of famous singers coming through all the time. And and the tenor I'm working with now, Dennis O'Neill, is has been has been singing for over thirty years. And and is still one of the you know premier tenors of the world, you say. Um, and we work with him every day. And I think, how, how what other opportunity? How else would that have come mm-hmm. about with fifteen students from around the world? It's like being it's like being an all black at the school, um, and the and the demand is such as well. You know, we sing four hours a day, and and then you're expected to go off and do your own learning for you know two three hours of, of the rest of the day, and and it's taxing it's very taxing but it's also very true as to how an opera house expects you to work these days and um they're preparing us for the worst you know when you run a when you prepare to play an 80 minute game of rugby you don't train for 60 minutes you know you train for double the time and <coughs> and uh that's what this school is preparing for us and and kitty after winning the the competition kitty um made it happen and uh you know the director of the school had, had no qualms when Kerry rang and said, wow. "When Kerry rang him and said, I want you to listen to this person.'" And I arrived and he said, "I don't know why Kerry wants me to hear you, but Kerry says, and I do." And uh, that's the sway that I don't think we realise she has, and um, I'm very grateful, very grateful to her. The life you're living, would it be fair enough to say, is pretty removed from that of the people you grew up with and your Fano? So how is it for you when you come home and trying to um, fit back into your life here? Yeah, I've got a very, uh, very 
staunch whanau and they, uh, you know, when I'm home, I'm still that little pimple-faced Māori boy <laughs> that uh, used to run around the back of the sheds, um, you know, and, and, uh, and my Uncle Simon will tell me, you know, if I've got guests there, I'll be the one running back and forth to the fridge to refresh them and, you know, they keep on my case and keep me very honest, which... Uh, which is a lovely thing. You know, I'm not the opera singer when I go home. I'm just the little merry boy. <laughs> you know, I'm the nephew or the cousin or the the grandson. You know, and um, I think that's the best thing for the best thing for me. Definitely, um, it keeps my humility. It keeps my feet on the ground, and uh, and uh, I've, I I still feel I belong. I guess you know, if I had come home and and you know people treated me as though I was wrapped in cotton wool it might not be very nice you know oh, here's our precious singer you know um and what is the funny reaction oh they're very proud like, oh, they're gee, very... gee, who would have thought that karaoke would take you to yeah, Cardiff yeah, eh? well, that's and Dave yeah, Kitty to karaoke, from karaoke <laughs> to Cardiff um no oh they're very proud and and um I guess initially there was a bit of uh there was never trepidation or anything like that there was never any sort of people weren't against it or or you know it was almost as though they weren't surprised really you know because I'd gone into it slowly the opera I'd started with music theater and and you know singing the sort of the phantom of the opera stuff and that was for people it was uh for a few of my cousins it was oh it was just oh churbo you know and to to sing sing an Italian song and and the older people loved it because it was you know what their parents used to sing after the war and these yeah. Neapolitan songs and Torna Surientos and all these and they you know oh they want to hear it again and they oh when's the next birthday you know <laughs> oh, and uh, so it's it's been wonderfully supportive and and um, in a way it's it's another tool that's been been used to. to make me think well I've got to keep going you know that that my family think I'm good at it you know because it's that's probably the hardest thing as a Māori to get up in front of your own family you know yes. I can get up in front of all the strangers in the world when I'm asked to get up in in front of my family that's when my knees start to shake because they know when I'm lying or they know when I'm faking it um, that's the only I guess that's the only time I'll get nervous is when all the whanau's there with their eyes wide open really watching you know and they're sort of, and they're not shy to say, "Oh, gee, I don't think you've got better over the last few months." You know, they're straight up. So, uh, you know, and there's no excuses either. You know, so so it's great. It's great to come home to a, to a family, and it's just, well, it's like any family, you know, the honesty you're pulled back down to earth, and and you know, don't come around here thinking you're all Mr. High and Mighty. Grab a tea towel and wash those dishes. <laughs> That's how it is. How how do you grapple with um, the different languages? Uh, it's a real struggle, to be honest. I I was never a, an academic at school, and um, you know, well, I'm still not an academic. You know, I really struggle to to deal with the languages. But but you know, the tool I've been given by my teacher Patrick Power is uh, the infinite, uh, the phonetic international phonetic alphabet, and that gets you know that steers me right for a lot of the time. Um, the, is, well, there's no opportunity to go wrong when you look at a dictionary and it's it's written out in a you know in in an exact phonetic pronunciation. Um, the only issue is the the sense and the style in which it's written um, because a lot of the things is, are, are written like how Shakespeare 
had written, yeah. you know, the thighs and thuthers. And <laughs> Which is like a way, the way that a lot of old Māori's been written as well. Yeah, I guess. Quite I guess. poetic and it's got a yeah, certain rhythm very, to it. It does have a rhythm. Um, yeah, and, and I get well, we have coaches, language coaches, and, and the best in the world still have language coaches, you know, and, and, and they help you with that and they sort you out. Um, it certainly helps to try and, you know, get languages under your belt and... and at the moment, I'm focusing on Italian and trying to get that, get that right, and and enough to be able to listen to a conversation and understand and and reply. You know, um, I don't want to be the best Italian linguist in the world, but mm. but um, it helps. You know, uh, um, but not so much when you're speaking the old Italian that's written a lot of the time. You know, it's, it's still very sort of it can throw you a bit, and and also, you know. Pl- a lot of clever composers can write uh, the way a, a, a mad Italian doctor would speak, you know, and it's uh, you, you've got to have someone with the smarts to be able to tell you, oh, no, 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 this is what he's saying, you know. And uh, that's that's the real difficulty, I guess, is this getting the style of the language and the, and, uh, the um, a, a clear understanding so that when people listen, they, they know what you're trying to say, you know, and... Uh, that's that's what I'm I'm dealing with now and trying to trying to iron out over the next year to, to have that Italian sorted. Now I've had this experience when I've travelled overseas. People always try to guess. They never realise that you're Māori. Although mm. some may say you're Polynesian. Yeah. Are you often mistaken as Italiano, Espanol? No, I wear a nice big bone carving. So uh, so. Um, People pick it. Yeah, people do pick it in, in Wales, in particular, I guess, because uh, our Māori rugby team's been over there a fair bit. But uh, in Wales, you know, there's a, it's a, it's like being a movie star. To be honest, to be a Māori over there, I walk down the street and I've, you know, I notice girls go, "Wow, it's a Māori," you know, <laughs> oh, and I've had one girl run up and say, "Oh, where, you know, where in New Zealand are you from?" And and oh, that's. It's really nice that uh, they're almost we're almost revered as a superhuman over there, and uh, it's certainly treated you know treated like it. And um, people want to know about you know what you know what's the Maori sort of status over in New Zealand, and you know are they um, you know and and I tell them that oh we we rule New Zealand you know we are <laughs> oh the prime ministers are Maori and you know <laughs> feed them up on all sorts of carry on. Are you but an all black? Yes. <laughs> Oh no, no, no! They, I think they can pick that I'm not a. <laughs> but uh, oh, that that is the thing. They all think I'm there to play rugby. When I do say that I'm here to sing opera, they're ooh, ooh, opera, oh, really? Uh, so I mean, oh, that's all right. I don't mind being confused for a rugby player. <laughs> so what's coming up next for you? How much longer are you at the school? Uh, uh, right till the end of the year, uh, December, I finish. Um, and and hopefully uh, I'll audition for a young artist program and get in and, and stay in Europe and um, I, I hope to be in Europe for quite a while and and do you know apply my craft over there. Uh, not that I you know I really I want to live in New Zealand of course and my even even now my heart cries to be in New Zealand and especially in summer uh, you know it, I I had no ambition really to leave New Zealand and and. Um, well, I am in Cardiff and I love being there, but my I can feel in my heart I want to be in New Zealand and I want to be close to my family. Um, but I know what's best for me and what's also best for my family is to be over there and and um, 
and really you know fight hard to stay there and and make it and and um get a name that get a name for myself that's not only about opera but hopefully dignity and honesty and and uh and um i i know that um that being there now is the right thing if i had have been there three or four years ago you know i might have punched my hand through a glass window and cut all my tendons like well jesse Ryder. but uh but um you know it's a uh, it's I'm feeling extremely strong at the moment, you know, being there and knowing that I'm learning from the best and and uh, I really wouldn't want that to be taken away. That's how I feel, you know. My only fear is that I don't want that to be taken away and I'm fighting hard to make sure that everything I do is 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 geared up at me staying there. And, um, and yeah, well, that's, that's about all I, I can say about that, you know, being there. Philip Rhodes, no Nati Kahununu, Minatiawa. The silence from the Auckland Museum about the disestablishment of key Māori positions has been deafening. Hoyano ka aroau ki tēnei kaupapa. It's back. The Wairau Film Festival kicks off next week from the 30th of May to the 2nd of June in Wairua, meaning organiser Leo Koziel isn't sleeping much. You always have a theme with the festival and this year's no different. Well this year we're focusing on our environmental issues. Uh, we're living in an interesting time, our generation is moving on and we're finding that a lot of the world's environmental ills that we were saying that we're going to show up have now showed up. There's icebergs on our doorsteps and... Icebergs that look like lollies. Icebergs that look like <laughs> lollipops and, and the news last night was that the, the ice shelf off the Antarctica has broken up. So we feel the world is imperiled and the indigenous peoples have always been aware of that. So this year's festival's theme is Te Reo o Te Whenua, Te Karanga o Papatuanuku. Now tell me about some of the offerings then. Oh well we're going to be replaying a film that was missed out by lots of people at last year's festival and that's a film called Return of the Whale Dreamers. It's a Beautiful, it's that about features a, some of your local whanau. Yes, our, our, our uh, chairperson Pauline Tangiora uh, travelled to the uh, indigenous people in Australia in the, uh, around about the millennium in fact. And uh, with the funding of wonderful people like uh, Julian Lennon, they all came together and looked at the issues of indigenous people's relationship with whales. And this film, we played it in Wairau, it had a wonderful reception, but we never got to play it in other places. So that's what we're going to be doing this year and taking that on the road. And we've also got some other wonderful environmental uh, documentaries. We're going to be playing Barry Barclay's feature documentary, The Neglected Miracle which is, I, I didn't even know this, but Barry had actually travelled to about 15 different countries looking at how indigenous communities actually treasure the, the ecological storehouse that is the seeds in their village. And he did that years ago, way before it became popular, eh? He did that back in the 1980s. He was a man be- before his time. And it was, it's so sad that we've lost him this, t- uh, this year. It was just, it's broken all of our hearts in Wairau. Um, and, and we were so honoured to have him in 2006 at our festival where we did a nearly complete retrospective of his films. And so this is the one film we didn't get to play at the last festival that we'll be highlighting under the theme of environment. 
Leo Cozy on or Nati Kahunanu Kitawairua. The festival's touring as well, going to Tomaranui, that's the hometown to the late filmmaker Don Selwyn. Also, Auckland and Wellington. Details are on our website and keep up with the feedback. That's always welcome at teahika at radionz.co.nz. Let the food settle. This is a whakatauki about allowing people to finish their kai when you're serving them and not clearing the table until they finish their kai and kungata torato here here that they've actually finished and, and ready to move on. Gareth Seymour, Ngati Temihinga. Kia ora, Gareth. That brings Sahi Ka to an end. Ko Maraya Rakrakua Ho, ko te waiata whakamutinga na te rakahua o te wautapu, ko na puke te ingoa o te waiata nei. He mihi mahana ki na kaikorero i tēnei wiki, na mihi ki na kaikorero i a wiki, i a wiki. Ki te whānau kei konei o i te whare pukapuka rātou, ko na kaiwaiata, me na kaira wiki wiki mihini, na mihi e hoa mā. E te iwi hei a tira wiki, mauri ora tātou katoa.